Welcome back, everyone. So as we were saying, a physical therapy podcast. This is season two, episode five, All Things Knee. I think I'm going to actually call it Some Things Knee. I feel like there's so much to talk about in the knee that I don't know if we'll, we'll cover it all in this episode, but we'll do our best if it becomes too much. Maybe we'll break it up into a two-part episode. One thing I wanted to touch on before we get into the knee subject is the previous episode, we talked about avascular necrosis and what the gold standard diagnostic imaging was for that. It can be MRI or CT scan. I think CT scan is going to be a little bit more specific, but either of those would be an appropriate diagnostic tool for avascular necrosis. So I just wanted to clear that up from the last episode before we jump into the knee. Mike, let's get right into it. I know this is kind of your forte, or at least it was back when we were at sports. So I'm going to kind of let you lead this discussion. Let's start talking with a little bit about manual therapy in the knee. And what percentage or in what patients do you feel that you typically use manual therapy techniques in the knee? And what are your go-to techniques? So for me, like manual therapy is geared more toward, for me, increasing range of motion. Or if they're like super painful, maybe trying to calm pain a little bit. So uh, early on, I tend to do, if it's like a patellofemoral pain, something something along those lines, I'll work in some just kind of basic like patellar modes, kind of get a feeling of, of what the patella does. As I kind of talk to the patient and, and, and get their history, that's something that's kind of easy to do. And then from there, I think it's mostly, if you think about the knee, it's mostly a load transfer joint. So unless they're stiff, there's not going to be much that you're going to do at the knee itself. So it mostly comes down to exercise there, maybe some soft tissue work. Maybe if there's like a, uh, if I think there's some sort of like pezanserine issue where they're getting a little bursitis there, I've seen some people respond pretty well to some soft tissue to like the medial hamstrings and to some of the adductors, but it's kind of on, on a case by case basis, but it's definitely not something that I tend to hang on to like deeper into the plan of care, maybe a couple times early on, but not too much after that. Right. You said two things there that I thought were important to talk about. First was like any type of tendonitis or anything like that. You said pezanserine bursitis, tendonitis, those type of presentations. You really want to do soft tissue more through the muscle belly rather than on the actual insertion. So that's just something to consider. Like you said, if you're doing some soft tissue on that medial hamstring, I've also seen some good results, at least within session on decreased pain, just that repetitive desensitization to mechanical stimuli. And then another point that I really liked was the knee being a load transfer joint. So I think this is really where your manual therapy comes into effect in regards to restoring knee extension, especially if you have an acute injury or if you have even a chronic knee OA patient. Typically what you'll see if you have quad weakness or if you lack knee extension is you are going to see during initial contact, these patients are going to land on a stiff either flex knee or extended knee. And what you need is that eccentric control of knee flexion during the loading phase to dissipate those ground reaction forces. So I think for me, at least with acute patients that that have knee issues and even chronic ones, restoring normal range of motion and then eccentric quad control to restore the gait mechanics is going to be crucial for decreasing those joint reaction forces during walking. If you don't restore those, I just feel like those patients never get better because their knee just constantly stays inflamed. Mike, any input on that? Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, most of the times with the knee, it's their motion's pretty good unless it's like someone who's post-op. Sometimes we'll see some significant like soft tissue limitations and like other joints like the hip might, you know, have their motion limited with if they have, you know, super tight glutes or something along those lines where, where, where they're not able to move through the ranges of motion. 
maybe same thing at the ankle. You're probably more likely to see some like joint limitations in, in range of motion there. Outside of your like arthritic population, most of your like younger patients, they might have limitations in like their ability to do things with like sport, like their hamstrings might, might be super tight or their rectus might be really tight and prevent motion that way. But as far as like the joint itself goes, I feel like you don't see too, too many limitations unless it's arthritic or post-op. One joint that isn't often talked about in the knee is the proximal tib fib. And I was reading through some of my old research here that that I reviewed when I was in PT school. And I have some notes here about the proximal tib fib becoming hypomobile after lateral ankle sprains and potentially contributing to lateral knee pain. Now, I've personally never seen this too too frequently. Mike, how often would you say that you mob the proximal tib fib and have you ever seen it be implicated after a lateral ankle sprain and actually create that, that lateral knee pain? So I'm actually working with uh, someone right now that I think that might be an issue. I, I, I don't, I haven't seen it very often, or at least it hasn't been too much on my radar. Um, and I normally only address it if I, if there seems to be, if, if things aren't going super easily. So if, if they're going through like a basic, easy progression, I feel like I tend not to look at it. But if it's someone, someone that's, you know, struggling to get a little bit of motion back, still has a little bit of pain, that's it. So I have someone right now that um, has a little bit of, he's having a hard time getting, getting dorsiflexion back, still has something kind of that like lateral ankle pain after a lateral ankle sprain. And so playing around with his fibula in general, not, not just proximal, but also distal and seeing. So that, that's kind of my, my like current experiment into it. I don't do it too, too much, but his is definitely stiff. So uh, I, I, may have, I may have a better answer for you next week if, if, if we get any sort of like significant improvement and kind of playing around with it. But I think with, with that, with the lateral ankle sprains and things like that. So as you go into dorsiflexion, the fibula moves almost like posteriorly and, and, and superiorly. Yeah, I, think, uh, I think you're thinking the distal tip fib. Yeah. And then so at the proximal, it's going to essentially do, it's still going to move superiorly, but it's going to be more like anterior with the movement. I, I think if it has like a long stick, if you kind of push on it one way, then the top is going to have to, it kind of wants to do the other. So I kind of do, if I'm going to do like a posterior distal, then I might do like an anterior proximal, if you think about it that way. But a lot of times I'll end up just kind of moving it all directions, just kind of loosen things up. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I kind of have fallen out of like the traditional roll and glide type stuff with, with my mobilization. If you think about like the circle theory in the shoulder where tugging on it one way, it's going to tug on it in the opposite direction as well, just because it's all connected. I kind yeah. of just see what's tight and mobilize in that direction. I try not to get too lost in the arthrokinematics. I mean, they're important and I think about them to an extent, but at the same time, you know, when I'm working on someone, it's not too difficult to just kind of hit both directions and, and move on. The one question that I wanted to ask you before we start to get into specific diagnoses was how often do you find yourself mobilizing dorsiflexion in patients with knee pain, especially younger athletic patients? And do you feel like dorsiflexion limitations have a huge influence? on the knee or is it kind of one of those things where like if someone has a poor squat it's just kind of like what people typically write it off to is oh well you lack dorsiflexion and that's kind of just like the fallback answer do you feel like that's that's typically true is limited dorsiflexion really the culprit a lot of the times with squatting or or movement dysfunction in the athletic population I mean, if if someone's like actually an athlete and actually needs those ranges of motion and actually needs to be able to dissipate force and decelerate, right? Because I, I have, I'll have some people that come in and they're just so tight that they're they're not even able to get into enough dorsiflexion to like if you imagine someone doing like a cut in basketball or right, when they need to decelerate, allow that knee to progress over their over their toe and then kind of make make their make their move from there. 
So if, if that's the issue where it's like it's so tight that they have that, that that motion isn't able to happen fluidly to the point where they can dissipate forces that way. Um, and that's something that I will absolutely address. Sometimes I'll have them just do a squat and you and you can just kind of see the people that just they get, you know, to 35 degrees of, of knee flexion. The only way they get deeper is just kind of that forward hip hinge, which is all glutes at that point. They're not able to kind of sink into more kind of getting getting their glute to go down, their knee progressing over their toe. Pretty easy to assess visually. And then that just allows you to kind of you can kind of dig down a rabbit hole a little bit that way and assess it open chain, assess it knee extended, assess it knee flex to see if it's more um, joint versus, you know, gastroc tightness. And you, you can assess it closed chain up against the wall have their um, toe up against the wall, get their knee going toward the wall, and then kind of slowly back it away and kind of check it out that way. Normal there is going to be, you know, 20 to 30 degrees or so. Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, I was watching the uh, Steelers-Browns game last weekend, and that's what they were talking about with Miles Garrett is when he gets around the edge, he needs that dorsiflexion to really cut and, and turn the edge and get after the quarterback. So that, that's what kind of popped into my mind when you started discussing the sports specific and the, the actual functional implications of dorsiflexion. Do you typically measure dorsiflexion during every knee evaluation or just a few? And if you are measuring it, do you typically measure it in closed chain, open chain, or both? I'll normally let my squat assessment dictate if I want to go down that rabbit hole. Sometimes I might, if, if they're like long sitting and, you know, maybe I'll just kind of like push up on their foot and just kind of get like a rough idea for if they're crazy tight or not. If they feel tight, then I'll maybe bend their knee a little bit and check it that way. But it's not normally like, I, I normally don't look at it until I assess their squat. And then I'll kind of dig a little bit deeper if, if it looks kind of wonky. I think that's a, that's a good starting point as far as kind of just getting our brains wrapped around what manual techniques we look at. Let's jump into some specific diagnoses here. Let's talk about conservative MCL tears and sprains. I, I feel like usually these aren't surgical unless, you know, the meniscus and the ACL are implicated. Typically, these tend to be more conservative. And the main thing with this one is just not allowing them to go into like positions of of knee valgus too early on in rehab where it's going to be stressing that MCL. If it's a grade two, they'll probably be braced for about three weeks. And then a grade three, probably braced for the six weeks, you can start range of motion at about three. I feel like these usually do pretty well. There's really no issues with it as, as long as you kind of use your clinical reasoning. You don't progress them into like valgus positions or adducted position, like hip adducted positions too quickly. Do you see a lot of these, Mike? Not too, too many. You know, I'll get one every, you know, six months or so. One thing I think to look at is I'll look at their feet and see if there's someone who has like a crazy fat, flat foot where they're kind of slapping into pronation pretty hard because that's going to put them into a little bit more of a valgus position just with like everything just with walking around with doing kind of their like daily activities and so it might run the risk of having that MCL take a little bit longer to kind of calm down and get back to normal so if they have really flat feet I might recommend like an orthotic or I'll even kind of tape them to see if that helps their symptoms a little bit, uh, which is kind of like a basic kinesio tape. You can do kind of like the like navicular sling. You can do kind of like more of like a teardrop method and kind of support that arch. So I'll, I'll see that. And yeah, I mean, I don't really have much science to back it up. It just kind of makes sense in my brain. So I figure might as well do it if it helps, you know. I feel like with anything in PT, you know, there's so many variables that having a good quality randomized control trial study prove anything at this point is pretty much impossible. And that's why every systematic review 
review that that we look at says, well, there's no evidence for anything in general exercise, specific exercise, doesn't matter what you do. And at that point, you might as well just say PT doesn't work. But I think PT is one of those skills where it's an, it's really more of an art and there's not going to be a good quality study for anything just because there are so many variables outside of that one little specific intervention that you're looking at. Yep. So as far as conservative ACL, Mike, for like partial tears and even like full tears, have you seen a lot of these? And do you typically feel like these patients have success with uh, conservative management? Yeah. I, I mean, I've probably seen, gosh, maybe like two or three and they seem to do fine though. Uh, I haven't had anyone that not, not do well. So yeah, I think it's just, I mean, they just kind of fall into your same categories, everything else. Understand what's going to put stress through the ACL, kind of avoid that for just a little bit. You can use any of your um, ACL kind of rehab protocols to to guide some of that stuff to kind of see what things you might want to avoid super early on. But for the most part, it's just let it calm down, get them strong, send them on their way. Right. And a pretty interesting article by Snyder Mackler and Fitzgerald out of Delaware. They uh, discuss a return to sport series for conservative ACL management. And those that pass this series of testing, 22 out of the 28 subjects, about 78 percent, were able to return to their pre-injury level. So that's a that's a pretty good amount, 78%, if you pass this series of testing with conservative ACL management, we're able to return. And the series included a single hop, a triple hop, a crossover hop, and a time six meter hop. And I think the value they had here was about 80% compared to the other side. Or was it 90? Do you remember off the top of your head, Mike? 80 is too low. It's going to have to be 90. Yeah, I I would say 90, honestly. That's a conservative gold standard for for that battery of testing and then it says kos greater than 80 percent and then less than one episode of buckling within the last year yeah i think that overall i mean i think that i don't know if that i I think with what we know now and and return to sport and all that stuff you know it's i i tend to do more than that of course yeah Um, that's like you know kind of that's like a very basic thing. I think those hop tests are, I think we've kind of proven they're, they're kind of easy to fool um, and kind of get into significant glute compensation and things like that. So you, so you might not, it might not be the, the, the best assessment. KOS is just subjective. A lot of these people will, will feel fine, right. even if their knee isn't quite where it needs to be. So uh, yeah, I, I think that's something. I, I think a lot of things that I like to look at, um, I've started doing more of like a linear scoring system test and see how they do with like with a drop jump to kind of like that, like jump off a box, then rebound, see how it looks there. Right. And I'll do that single leg too and kind of compare side to side, make sure that that looks okay. And then just simple, just kind of like single leg squat. I want to be able to do like a decent single leg squat, have the form look good. And I'll do that to failure and kind of compare side to side and see how it looks. I think the final piece of that test that, that's lacking as well is looking at quadricep strength. Yeah. I know for ACL reconstruction, there was a Delaware Oslo study that said returning to sport prior to nine months significantly increased retear rate. And then also quadriceps strength was the biggest predictor of retear. So to me, that makes sense. I mean, your quadriceps are going to eccentrically control knee flexion. Yeah, there's the the transverse plane component of, of the glutes and the hip external rotators controlling the internal rotation. But if you're buckling into to knee flexion from a drop landing, you're losing that eccentric control, and that's just going to be a volatile motion where you could easily re-tear during a cut or drop landing or anything like that. So I think quad strength is going to be a huge one. So I was kind of looking at the literature and handheld dynamometry for quad strength mm-hmm. has kind of been, I don't want to say debunked, but it's not equivalent to a biodex isometric yeah. isokinetic testing. So we haven't really found a good way to necessarily do the quad strength testing without the biodex equipment. Do you, do you know of anything? 
I mean, obviously Biodex is your gold standard, but most places don't have $20,000 to drop on that to use with 4% of their population. So I don't, my facility does not have the money for a Biodex. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think part of it, I mean, it's, you know, we talk about just pure strength, but then it's also like how fast can they generate that amount of force. So uh, if they're having a hard time struggling with, you know, how hard they can kick, I think making sure that you're targeting those type 2 muscle fibers that are going to kind of get that right. So your proper dosing, not not just, you know, four sets of 12 or whatever it is, but start working on higher higher loads and then also faster loads too, because that, that, that's going to be one way to, to kind of increase your force output is working on that, that speed of loading. So. Yeah, that- the high angular velocity is definitely mm-hmm. going to be going to be important for returning yeah. the sport. And when we talk about the angle on the next episode, that's also important with the Achilles, especially after Achilles reconstruction. Yeah. So the final piece that I wanted to talk about here was a PCL sprain or partial tear or even a full tear. Full tear, you're probably going to get surgery. But what you want to consider with this one is just remember that during heel slides, you want to support that tibia. You know, gravity is going to create a posterior glide of tibia. And, you know, that's something that early on might be irritating and counterproductive during your rehab and at the same time being cognizant with your hamstring strengthening as those will create a posterior glide of the tibia as well when they contract yeah and that's it i i've never seen one conservatively so yeah i don't don't think it's too conservative ever i'm thinking more if you have like a sprain that's oh yeah 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 most are going to get uh most are going to get surgery next let's talk about knee oa this is one that's kind of like hit or miss there's a lot of education to be done as far as from the patient's perspective these are your people that come in and they're they're saying it's bone on bone it's the worst physicians ever seen so you've got to break through that that educational barrier and then from that point the treatment itself is is challenging for the same reasons as we talked about with hip oa in the last episode you know the extent of of the joint degeneration and at the same time being able to find that therapeutic dose without overloading or underloading mike back when you were seeing general outpatient what did you find to be successful with these patients education and exercise and maybe some feel-good things about the same as everyone <laughs> did you um did you utilize any specific manual therapy techniques that you felt like worked better than others like i know there's some articles that look at responders for NEOA that that do well with hip mobilization or did you feel like patellar mobilization may have been beneficial to be ephemeral mobilization it was all on a case-by-case basis. I don't know if I have anything that consistently, you know, I, I, I didn't create any, you know, in my brain algorithm. If that's kind of what you're wondering, it's more like, ah, they're walking extension. I'll try, you know, a couple different extension moves and see which one seems to work best for this patient. And that'd be what I go with. And then same thing with, you know, flexion. If they're walking to flexion, I'll work on the tibia, see how that goes. A couple different positions, just get them moving. Maybe I'll use, you know, the leg press or some sort of other machine to kind of get them moving that way get them into kind of their their max range of comfortable motion and work all the way through it but yeah i mean i don't have like a great algorithm in 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 my brain for how i did things right a few things that i've noticed with this population especially towards like the end stage of where their knees getting pretty bad is they end up walking with like a stiff knee gait pattern they have decreased knee flexion during loading like we were discussing earlier is the quad inhibition from the recurrent inflammatory response to chronic inflammation of the knee joint. So with a lot of these, I'll even measure quad lag. Some of these people cannot do a straight leg raise without quad lag. So I take it back to like my post-op stuff. I look at quad lag, quad strength. I look at their gait, make sure that they're getting that knee flexion during loading, dispersing those ground reaction forces. 
And then again, it's just your general hip strengthening, especially for like improving the patellofemoral joint kinematics. That's going to be crucial. A lot of these NEO-A patients actually respond kind of similarly to like patellofemoral pain patients. They, you know, you get them in some good glute dominant positions, some positions that decrease loading through the knee joint, improve the lower extremity biomechanics, and some of them, some of them do pretty well. Yeah. So for the NEO-A patients, I typically haven't found like a manual therapy technique that I think works wonders. I mean, sometimes I do like knee distraction with them just kind of like sitting at an elevated table and I'm having them at like 90 degrees of knee flexion and I'm just kind of like distracting the knee joint. Sometimes though, I kind of just, I pivot away from it. I feel like I'm using my body a lot, not in the best position and I don't really know how much within session or or long-term relief they get with that technique. Do you feel like patellar mobility is something that you that you do with these patients? I know most of them are hypermobile in the patella, but is is the juice worth the squeeze on that one? Do you feel like it's beneficial? I'll look at it um, and see if I think it's something. A lot of times with these patients, my manual time is more my like talk to them, catch up with them time. So it's a little bit of like two birds, one stone thing. Like I'm going to need to talk to them anyway. So just kind of play around the kneecaps, see how it feels. Maybe do that, that same kind of like distraction technique you were talking about kind of off the edge of the table as we're just kind of talking about things. Yeah, like, like, I, I don't I don't tend to spend too much time on manual, but like I said, it's, it's kind of like my first few sessions type of thing as I'm getting to know someone, spend a little bit more time with them to kind of build that relationship, I think is important. And that can be your kind of like manual time, getting the feeling of what their knee joint feels like. And then if that helps your decision making later, great. If not, at least you kind of talk to them for a little bit. All right, let's transition to patellofemoral pain. This one I don't want to spend too much time on. I feel like as long as you kind of do what you're supposed to do, these patients really do well. I'll kind of hit on my favorite exercises for this population. The main emphasis is, yeah, you want to do like your hip strengthening, improve the lower extremity biomechanics during sport-specific exercise and during functional exercise. With these, I'm doing squat with a band around their knees, closed kinetic chain hip external rotation like we described in a previous episode, isometric hip abduction, their opposite leg is pushing into the wall, into a ball, and you're getting stance leg glute, kind of like mimicking that that mid-stance phase of running. Side steps with a band around their ankles. You know, occasionally if they need to participate in their activity, I'll do some patellar taping. There's not great evidence for it, especially to say like medial is better than lateral. Kind of just have them squat or do an activity in whatever direction it creates pain reduction. That's typically the direction I'll tape that. Like I've taped people in the lateral glide before and they've gotten relief with it. So I try not to get too stuck in the traditional like medial versus lateral taping and then looking at single leg squat kinematics improving their neuromuscular control and then working into like a step and hold this is kind of like they're just stepping forward sticking the landing soft knee soft ankle working on those good landing mechanics and and valgus control yeah i mean i think that's yeah that's most of your big stuff right and i I think kind of the big thing you talked on um that i I like to use as like part of it is have them do something and then see if you providing a medial glide gives them any sort of relief thing i'll actually do is just kind of like compression Uh, so i'll just take my hand and essentially kind of create a little bit more compression within that patellofemoral joint Uh, maybe some people if they have more of like a shallow trochlea maybe actually enjoy that compression a little bit more kind of deepens that articulation within the femoral groove uh so something that i that i play around with started this a little bit more recently is i'll actually see if contracting their their quad seems to help so i'll have them do like a backward step down and see how that feels if that's painful or not and then what i'll actually 
do is I'll have them do the same exact exercise, but with like a TKE. So as they're kind of standing up, they're kind of forced to pull into that band and, and use their quad a little bit more. And sometimes that'll actually create a little bit of pain relief and it'll make the movement more comfortable. And so with those patients, that, that lets me know that they definitely are going to need to work on that quad strength um, to essentially kind of tighten up that, that articulation of that patella within the femoral groove. So it slides a little more tightly instead of kind of, you know, that kind of like micro instability kind of talk where you're getting just a little more movement through that joint might make it a little more angry. Yeah, that's pretty interesting because traditionally when you think about patellofemoral pain, at least in the early phases of research, uh, a lot of the stuff was saying how increased quadricep contraction creates too much compressive force and, and pain. But I think, you know, I definitely agree with your line of thinking as far as the compression increasing the articulation between the uh, the trochlea and the patella. So. I think that's pretty much what our taping does a lot of times anyway. You know, we talk about providing a medial glide, all these things, but really it's probably just kind of tightening up that articulation a little bit. Yeah, creating – and a lot of my tape jobs are actually focused more around compression than actual like vector force going medial lateral. Do like a, a bottom U-shape, a top U-shape, and then like a straight line across just to kind of increase compression. Again, mm-hmm. no evidence to say that it actually does that, but I found with, with those like U-shape type of formations on the bottom and top strands, it gets a little bit more relief and – Maybe it's through compressive forces. I don't know. But the main thing with patellofemoral pain is that hip strengthening alone is is not enough. You have to get the hips activated and firing in the motions that specific that are specific to their sport or task. That movement re-education piece and motor reprogramming of the synergies to improve the lower extremity biomechanics is going to be crucial. Mm, yeah. Next diagnosis that I wanted to touch on here was patellar tendinopathy. Have you seen a lot of these, Mike? A fair amount. Yeah enough. So how, how would you differentiate between, you know, because you're going to have a younger population with patellofemoral pain or patellar tendinopathy. How do you distinguish the diagnosis and say, you know, this is more of a patellar tendinopathy versus patellofemoral pain? And then talk to us a little bit about what your treatment looks like. I think the big thing is location of pain, right? If they have a patellar tendinopathy, it's going to hurt on the patellar tendon. Maybe they'll have some tenders to palpate. You can potentially try your um, kind of like decline squat or whatever where they have their, they're standing on, on a slant board or some sort of service where their heels are elevated and do a squat that way. That in theory puts a little more stress on that patellar tendon. So that's one thing to kind of look at. Uh, but I think the biggest thing for me is is the location of pain. If it hurts on the tendon, it's probably coming from the tendon. Right. And a, a thing to note too is most patellar tendinopathies don't have too much pain at rest. It's going to be more with like the contraction and the pull through the tendon. And then and, you know, it, it goes away once that, that stimulus is removed. Yeah, uh, it's not going to be that. Sorry. It's, it's not going to be that, like, achy behind the kneecap pain when they sit for a long period of time, things like that. Is, is that kind of what you were getting at? Yeah, exactly. So there is a little bit of a difference in their subjective reports. And then with patellofemoral pain, again, you should be able to modify it within session using some of the techniques you described, like compression and the gliding and all that. So that's a good way to tease it out. If nothing you're doing with that patellar glide is changing what they experience, then more than likely there could be another culprit. Yeah, I think so. And then another thing to kind of think about is just the age of your patient, right? And so when you're dealing with uh, younger patients like that, kind of apophysis at the tibial tubercle closes like between like 15 and 19 like give or take so if someone's within that within that age range looking to see if their location pain is a little bit more distal and so you know kind of treatment for you know patellar tendinopathy and and kind of those load transfer tendons like uh, patellar tendon and your achilles is kind of load it load it load it load it load it and that's kind of what we've got 
gotten into. Your patient's a little bit younger and the pain's a little bit more distal kind of at that uh, tibial tuberosity down there. It, it tend to not load that too much. That, that That's going to involve much more offloading and, and strengthening around it, especially if they have an x-ray that says that the growth plate's still open. So tendinopathy, you load, 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 um, as long as it's not too, too irritable. But then you're kind of that Osgood slaughters and you're going to treat that more more with, with an unloading program at first before you kind of gradually work back into it. Right. Yeah, that, those are all very good points. And then once you get into higher levels, looking at their vertical jump landing, a lot of these individuals have stiff knee patterns. Like you were saying, the patellar tendon has uh, some of those load dispersion properties. And if they're landing with a stiff knee, that is going to contribute to irritation, inflammation through that tendon. And then one thing that's kind of debated in the literature, at least was debated, was eccentric training for the tendinopathy versus heavy, slow resistance exercise. I think eccentric training has kind of fallen out a favor and the individuals who publish the article for patellar tendinopathy and JOSPT advocate for heavy, slow resistance exercises. I think they say like four seconds concentric, four seconds eccentric. Is that typically what you follow, Mike, or what do you? Yeah, I think that's what they did. And they, I think that, is that that same study that, that kind of like compared like isometrics to isotonics to kind of see if it was like time under tension, the amount of load, the isometric versus the isotonic? Yeah, this was less of a comparison. It was more of a clinical commentary okay. about the actual rehabilitation. They may have referenced that study. Yeah, um, maybe. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's probably right. Um, with like my athletes and things like that, these where I tend to you know check out their motion, right? They're super stiff in, into dorsiflexion, right? They're super stiff into. One thing I've seen is like almost that like people that like do their squat and they're not able to like sink their butt down, like their like proximal hamstrings are like so tight that they can't like, or their their like glutes are so tight that they can't just like sink down into like hip flexion. And so making sure to work on kind of that mobility there um, tends to come into play here because you know if it's a football player and he's going to be squatting, right, you want his knee to be able to go into some sort of excursion so he can kind of work that way. Yeah. I don't know. That's a bit of a ramble, but that, that, that that's where can we, we just kind of talked about that kind of mobility stuff earlier. But I've, I've seen it a couple of times where they're just so, so stiff throughout other joints. So they just kind of like load that tendon so abruptly because they're not able to just kind of slowly dissipate that force with their normal motion. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, when you think about stretching the hamstrings, you want to stretch them in the straight leg raise position, knee extended, but then also with the hip flex to 90 and extending the knee just to get flex flexibility through different parts of the hamstring. And I think overall, that'll help improve the mobility. I feel like often we just kind of do like our seated hamstring stretch, knee extended, but maybe manually stretching them with the hip flex at 90 and then trying to extend the knee to get a little bit different angle there of, of stretch on the hamstring could be beneficial. And then as far as treatment goes, I, I like to include the decline squat kind of on the tilt board angled against something and that just kind of helps load that patellar tendon a little bit more yeah i mean i'll, I'll, I'll use it sometimes it's I, it was i think i'm studying more as like a provocative test have they studied much with it with treatment i i, I don't know maybe, maybe you know yeah so within that commentary there's two different treatment programs there's one designed around the rocker board kind of decline and they're doing that decline squat and they compared mm -hmm. it to heavy slow resistance i think the commentary favored heavy slow resistance but said a combination of both as far as loading that tendon in phase two strengthening phase is is optimal yeah, I mean, it makes sense. You're going to load it a little bit more in tendons. You need to load it to get it better. So, yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I like I've used it sometimes, but not with like science background. So it makes sense. And then let's move on to 
hamstring tendinopathies here. This is going to be kind of honestly related a little bit more to the hip if you're looking at the proximal hamstring, but but let's let's talk about it just because it's not something we touched on in the last episode. So typically your hamstring tendinopathy or strain is going to come from like your sprinter, they're at end range hip flexion during terminal swing, they're extending that knee for heel strike, and that's creating a lot of compressive forces through that ischial tuberosity where the hamstring tendons originate. Mike, talk to me a little bit about the treatment for these and what you typically do with these patients. I mean, so I think with, with kind of that like proximal hamstring tendinopathy, you want to make sure that you're not in too much compression to start. So the more flexed your hips are, the more you're going to compress that hamstring at the ischial tube. So start with more loading with an extended hip. So more your kind of like bridge type positions, maybe some like isometrics there then with more, more knee flexed. So you're kind of putting the hamstring on slack of the knee, putting the hamstring on slack up the hip, and then loading that way. And then you just gradually work into higher levels of loading, single leg loading with the hip in more flexion and with the knee in more extension um, and kind of work from there. And then, you, you, I mean, you can get creative with exercise. There's, there's a couple of protocols like JOSBT had that um, study that came out. I don't remember when that was, like 20. 20- 17, 16, something like that. Um, and they ran through a good protocol there, which is a great place to start. But it's just generally working from exercises that put the hamstring under less compression and less force, and then just gradually working up as tolerated into more compression and more force. Yeah, and some things to look at with, with your runners, especially if they're recovering from a hamstring strain, hamstring tendinopathy, is looking at overstriding or excessive forward trunk or increased anterior tilt. All of these are going to increase the compressive forces through the ischial tuberosity. And that's just something that this clinical commentary recommends to look at, especially as you're getting back to running. And then another important thing to look at during the evaluation is going to be assessing the adductors. So the adductor magnus actually assists with hip extension and its fibers are intimately related with the hamstring tendons. So sometimes your adductor magnus can also be implicated and it's just another exercise or movement that you want to gradually load into if if you are managing a proximal hamstring tendinopathy. Yeah, and, and that would work in more of your like pure hip extension plane, right? So it works with the hamstrings and hip extension because it doesn't cross the knee, right? right? So maybe you're not just working in, you know, knee flexion hamstring exercises, but also hip extension hamstring exercises with that like nice and straight, maybe like a straight leg bridge or something like that. Yeah. And even working into like, you know, your RDLs or straight leg deadlifts. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, you even kind of able sprinter hips, you know, with the Pilates reformer, I love the one where like the, the anchors around their the anchor is around their ankle and they're in a hip flex position at 90 degrees and pulling straight back into hip extension from that 90 degree position. And then the Pilates reformer is providing the resistance. I know not, not all clinics or most clinics don't have one, but that's one that stuck out in my mind. And then towards like end phase, you could probably do that just them laying on their back with like a cable pulley system or with, you know, hip flex at 90 incorporating a knee flexion cable pulley exercise exercises with the hip flex just to get that that end range compressive force through your your end phase of rehab yeah i think those are all great and then let's talk about hamstring strains mike do you do anything differently with a strain versus a tendinopathy and, and what do you feel like are your big differences depends on how, how acute the strain is uh like if it's like if it's pretty acute i tend not to do too much isolated um like hamstring stretching loading anything like that I tend to do more like if it's an athlete, just kind of like some low level agility type work. There was that one article and I think it was one of our required readings for school, like way back, you know, like first year or something like that, where it kind of compared a kind of early loading and stretching program to more just kind of like a low load agility and kind of almost like general exercise type stuff for hamstrings. And the people did more kind of low load agility were able to return 
trying to sport quicker. It was fairly significant. I think it was like a couple of weeks quicker. So be careful with early loading with them. Maybe stretch the opposite musculature. I, th- I think you'll see. And just kind of keep them moving is probably more important early on. And then once they start to calm down, then I think obviously you have to start restoring normal athleticism. You know, they have to be, you want them flexible. You want them strong. You want them to be able to pr- produce force quickly, dissipate force quickly. So it's just your standard return them to sport activity stuff. Um, and just make sure that your exercises kind of target that hamstring's ability to do what it needs to do. Right. So some interesting things that I have noted here is that your biceps femoris is typically the most involved with your hamstring hamstring strains. The reason that is, is because it actually has innervations from two separate nerves. It gets some innervation from the tibial nerve and then some innervation from the common peroneal. And this actually introduces some like muscle coordination deficits. Something just that I had noted that I found pretty interesting. And then adverse neural tension is something that you may want to look at in this in this group. At times, adverse neural tension can, um, can create some of that persistence pain, especially if that's limiting some of their mobility. So just a, a unique part of hamstring strains that I wanted to point out. And then otherwise, you know, your strengthening phase looks kind of similar. Again, like you were saying, you don't want to load them too early. You want to go those lower loads and, and focus on the agility. But other than that, the exercises at some point just kind of follow the same same kind of path using a graded exercise approach, load tolerance, all the stuff we, we talk about almost every episode. So I think that covers it for those main like tendinopathies, tendinitis. Did want to talk about uh, knee pain in the older adult with, you know, we kind of hit on knee OA already. The, the final thing I wanted to touch on when I see with a lot of these individuals, especially ones that have pains at multiple sites, I notice a lot of decreased hip extension in these individuals. And they're not getting that hip extension and that's decreasing their gluteal contributions during gait. So these are the people where they have like tender points in their calves, tender points in their hamstrings, some knee OA, some knee pain, maybe even like a history of back pain, you know, plantar fasciitis that's been on and off. These are these are people with a lot of different conditions and diagnoses. And I think a lot of it is related to that hamstring overuse, um, ca- calf overuse, gastroc overuse during push off and gait and the lack of gluteal contributions and, and hip extension. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's good. I mean, what is your um, what does treatment tend to be for those people? Just a lot of strength, and, like just more like stretching and soft tissue mobility than your than your other treatment treatment would be. I think it depends. I mean, I I'll screen the hip with these patients and look at their actual joint mobility. I'll measure their hip extension, their true hip extension and side lying versus you know how much of, of the movement they're getting is pelvic tilt versus true hip extension. A lot of these also have a history of of hip OA. If they're getting less hip extension, they're going to get increased anterior hip joint forces and they're going to avoid that motion. So it's going to be a very comprehensive multiple joint approach where you're looking at every piece of the puzzle and just addressing the impairments as you go. I, I can't really say there's a cookie cutter approach. It's just really being aware of all the implications at every level of the joint, whether it's limited dorsiflexion, limited hip extension. You know, I feel like the glutes are usually going to be implicated in a little bit weaker, especially with the history of hip pain, low back pain. So I kind of just go through my checklist and, and look at their movement and then piece it all together. These require, I think, another level of critical thinking when it comes to creating a comprehensive approach. Yeah, that's great. Mike, the final question that I had for you, it's kind of more, I just want to hear your opinion on it. When I was looking through some of the documents that I had here in preparation for the podcast, there was one study that looked at patellofemoral pain, and it pretty much said that pronation, static Q angle, dynamic Q angle, none of these were related to pain in patellofemoral pain. But the only variable that they found was common within all these individuals was hamstring tightness. And I just wanted to get your opinion on why that might be and what you think the implications for that study are. Um, I don't know. 
<laughs> you, you want my honest opinion? That's all good. Um, no, that's okay. You're, I mean, I say I don't know multiple times a day. I just wanted to hear your opinion. It kind of, you know, caught me off guard. I mean, I, I get that there's going to be asymptomatic people with the high dynamic Q angles and, and really no symptoms and heavy pronation and no symptoms. The only thing I could think of is that when you're over recruiting your hamstrings, you're probably recruiting your glutes a little bit less and that over recruitment is causing the tightness. So I think it's rather the the chicken than the egg. I think it's more of the hamstring tightness are a symptom of what's causing your patellofemoral pain because of the lack of gluteal contributions. I don't necessarily think the hamstring tightness is causing the patellofemoral pain. Yeah, I mean, like that that makes sense in theory, right? But yeah, I I think it kind of falls back into our address the impairments, right? right? And so yeah, again, either way, you're going to stretch the hamstring and strengthen the glutes and do all your same treatment. But just something interesting that I found that I wanted to probe your brain on here. That is interesting. I mean, I've, I've never heard that before. I'd probably need to sit down and process it a little bit to give you a decent answer. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Uh, I think we'll I think we'll end the episode here as far as covering the knee. I think we did. I think we did an okay job of hitting a lot of hot topics in really really timely fashion and not not wasting too much time. So I think we'll keep it at one episode. We'll make this it's officially episode five, all things knee, and then on the next episode we will cover the ankle, which I'm really looking forward to. I really enjoy the ankle. Sounds good. I'm going to let you drive a little more on that one. All right. Well, I look forward to it, Mike. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. As always, we appreciate your support. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and we'll keep trying to pump out the content. Thanks, guys.